Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Welcome to Hollywood and Levine. Hey, thank you for being here. I am Ken Levine, your podcast host. I hope you got a chance to listen to last week's episode, my interview with my partner, David Isaacs. Again, I think it's really one of my best in the series so far. And if you haven't, go back and check that out after you listen to this one. And I always say that podcasts are an absolute godsend for TV comedy writers because all of these horror stories that we normally can only tell in delis to each other disgruntled TV writers, well, now we can unload on you. And that's what I have this week. This is a saga of a TV pilot that David Isaacs and I did for NBC back in 1979 called Characters. And it's going to sound kind of like uh, one of those Project Greenlight sagas where everything that can go wrong did go wrong. But it's a true story, every word of it. And it's kind of funny. In retrospect, it wasn't kind of funny living it at the time, but it gives you a glimmer of just what it is like to come up with an idea that you think would be a great television series and then have to navigate those waters and what it takes to actually come up with a finished product that is anywhere near what you envisioned in the first place. Anyway, that's this episode of Hollywood and Levine, and we start it off right now. Hollywood and Levine. This is the second pilot that David Isaacs and I ever did for NBC. It's actually the first pilot where we were also the producers. We did a pilot back in the late 70s where we were just the writers and really had no say in anything. But this was the first time that it was our baby, our production company. So let's go back to 1979 and the saga of the pilot characters. At the time, we were coming off of MASH, and NBC came to us with a deal. They said, we will give you a two-pilot commitment. Of the two pilots, we guarantee to make at least one of them. So, armed with that, we went off to 20th Century Fox, which had been our home with MASH, and we made a development deal, so we were exclusive to 20th Century Fox, and they would produce the pilot. At the time, Fred Silverman had just come over to run NBC. Fred Silverman was the wonderkin 
who in the early 70s turned CBS around and made them a powerhouse. And then in the mid-70s, he went over to ABC and did the exact same thing for them. So now it's the end of the 70s, and he was trying to pull off the hat trick and make NBC number one. NBC had fallen on hard times. The president of the programming division, by the way, television programming division was Brandon Tartikoff, and he will come into play through the course of this. So we have this pilot commitment, and I go off to Hawaii on vacation that Christmas, and I read a book called Something Wonderful Right Away. And this was a book that detailed the whole emergence of improv comedy in Chicago, the Second City, the Compass Players, and out of that came a number of brilliant comics, and among them, Mike Nichols and Elaine May. And I thought, you know, this would be a very interesting idea for a series. What about a guy and girl comedy team that started out working in an improv group and they kind of took off the way Nichols and May did. And the basic thrust of the pilot, and this was before when Harry met Sally, but our basic premise was can a man and a woman who are attracted to each other or eventually become attracted to each other, can they work together as friends so that seemed like a very interesting idea. Saturday Night Live was really only on the air three, four years, so it was still really hot. And the idea of Second City and improv comedy and all like that was part of the zeitgeist. So we go in and we pitch this idea, and uh, Brandon was not in the meeting. There were a couple of underlings, and they said, okay, we like the idea, but we want to add an element to it. They had read a book called Semi-Tough, which was a football book about the Dallas Cowboys. And there is an element of that book where there is a triangle, a triangle romance. And they were looking for a semi-tough type of triangle romance. And they figure, ooh, we could do it with this. We could give the girl a boyfriend and then we have a triangle situation. And at the time, we said, well, you know, okay, I guess we could do that. You know, we're trying to be, uh, you know, good soldiers and team players, yada, yada. And we said, okay, so we started developing this. And then we realized, well, wait a minute. There is no real triangle here because it's clear that the Nichols and May team are not romantically inclined. So she's got a boyfriend and she's got a partner. What's the big deal? So we went back to NBC and we said that. And they said, well, we don't care. Make the guy jealous. We said, well, what if we don't have the guy? And they said, well, then you don't have a show. Okay. So we concocted this outline and we bring it into them. And again, this is the underlings. You never want to have meetings with network underlings. Never, ever, ever. So our show started with the improv class and the Nicholson May characters working on a scene together, and it really clicks, and they really like each other. And so in the next scene, they go to her apartment, and he proposes the idea of the two of them working together. The underling said, uh, no, 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 you, you can't do that. Why not? Well, because Fred Silverman hates shows that begin in the workplace. So start the show in the apartment. 
We said, well, it makes no sense starting the show in the apartment. I mean, how are we going to describe what improv comedy is, what they do, the fact that they clicked, who these people are? I mean, there's like nine million concepts that are floating around that we have to explain where we could just as easily show it in like a three-minute scene and then it's very clean and neat. Nope, can't do it, can't do it. Okay, so we go off and we write our first draft and I don't have to tell you how difficult it was writing that first scene. It was murder and it was just so unwieldy. Well, we finished the script and we turn it in and we hear that NBC was very lukewarm about it. They were not very excited by the script. So we go in for our second draft notes, and this time it's Brandon Tartikoff who's giving us the notes, just us and Brandon. And Brandon sits down and says, let me ask you guys a question. Why did you start this show in the apartment? Why didn't you just start it in the improv class? And we explained why. And he said, well, that's stupid. That's just idiotic. Start the show in the improv class. They meet, they click, we totally get it. We said, okay, great, thank you. We, we'd love to do that note. What else have you got? He said, nothing. He said, the rest of it is just fine. It's just that the beginning was ridiculous. So we said, okay. We went home. Literally, it took us a day to do the second draft. It was just so easy. And we turn it back in, and immediately they pick it up. They're going to make the show. So now we go in and we have our first casting meeting and I'm in the hallway and I bump into the idiot underling who gave us that note and he said, oh man, I don't know what you guys did, but you really pulled this one out of the fire. Oh man, it's like amazing what you did in that second draft. You just saved this project. It's like, yeah, great, fuck you. Then I went to Brandon and I said, I don't want him anywhere near our show for the rest of the time. I don't care. <laughs> I don't care if we make an enemy. He is done. I don't want him in any meeting. I don't want him on the stage. I don't want him anywhere near our project. The guy is a fucking moron. Done with him. And Brandon said, yeah, okay. I don't think Brandon was too fond of this guy either. I'm sure Brandon was not the one who hired him. And later, when he eventually left NBC, you'll be shocked to know that this guy did not have a very lengthy career in television. So now it is time to begin casting. And we meet the head of NBC Casting, a uh, little old lady named Ethel Winett. Ethel Winett had been around. I think she originally cast some of Shakespeare's plays for him. That's how long she has been doing it. And she was this feisty, dyspeptic woman who hated everything. It was her and her assistant, Eddie Foy Jr., who was this kind of, hey, guys, how are you? It's Eddie Foy Jr. So we start talking about casting and the prototypes. And in terms of our vision of who this couple would be, for the girl, we kind of pictured like an Alana Glazer if it were today. And if it were today for the guy, kind of a nebbishy Jimmy Fallon. So that's sort of who we saw. And they said, fine. We began the casting process and we got a trip to New York 
to go and see some New York actors. So we fly to New York, we're in a casting office, and we decide, well, why don't we just take a video camera and just record some of these auditions from people we like? We'll have callbacks and we'll just bring in the people we like and then we'll record it black and white, you know, down and dirty, but at least you get a sense of who the people were that we liked. So that's what we did. In fact, I still have that and I did the reading with the girls. So I was the Nichols guy when we were doing it with the girls. We had uh, Carol Potter who went on to have a pretty nice career. Also, uh, Andrea Martin came in and read, and she was great. We liked Andrea Martin an awful lot. Then there were, uh, there were a couple of people who later went on to become big writers. Matt Williams, who went on to create Roseanne. Uh, he was somebody who read with me. He came in as the boyfriend. And also Lynn Green, who is now a big writer. She works on a lot of the uh, Ryan Murphy shows. So we get this tape. And we go back to Los Angeles and we show it to Ethel Winant because we were very excited about Andrea Martin. At the time, I think she was doing SCTV. Maybe it was even before then. Hard to say. But she was great and very funny. You know Andrea Martin. First of all, Ethel hated the fact that the tape was in black and white. This was just amateurish. What is she looking at? This is just crap. He said, well, that's really all we had. And we did this sort of as a bonus. Well, she hated everything. She hated Andrea Martin. And we said, well, what is your conception of this character? Remember, we're thinking Alana Glazer. She says, Tony Tennille. Now, Tony Tennille was a singer. She was part of that 70s group, Captain and Tennille. And she was very white bread, blonde, probably couldn't act. That's who she saw. So we were miles apart. Meanwhile, since we were figuring to make this pilot for the fall, and it was now like March already, we had rented space on a soundstage at the CBS Radford lot in the Valley, and we had rented offices, and we were really gearing up for this thing, and we needed a director. So we went to a gentleman who we knew from our days at MTM, and he had directed a number of things for the uh, MTM company. We went to him, and he loved the pilot, and he was totally on board. So we had a really good director who was seasoned and understood that MTM-type comedy so we were in good shape there. Well, we continued to try casting, and she won't approve anybody. And then we get a call from our agent, the director, who we tried to call for a couple of days, and he wasn't returning our calls, which seemed kind of strange. We find out that the director has just been hired by NBC to be the vice president of comedy development. And we thought, fantastic. It's like we have a guy on the inside, a guy who loved our pilot so much that he was willing to direct it, and now 
He's kind of like our guardian angel on the inside. Well, that was not to be. He gave us more trouble and more flack than anyone at NBC. So now we have to go out and get another director, which we did. We got a really good one named Will McKenzie. But the clock was ticking. They wouldn't approve anybody that we wanted for the parts in the show. And so eventually they said, well, why don't we just push? Why don't we just do this for mid-season? And we said, well, okay, but we had to then vacate the offices and give up the rental for the stage, and it cost us uh, an awful lot of money, and we continued to cast through the summer. Now, one of the other parts was for the director of the improv group, and for that, we figured sort of a middle-aged woman. And a number of good candidates came in, and one came in and kind of knocked us out, and that was Ann Jeffries. Now, you have to be of a certain age to know the name Ann Jeffries. A long, long time ago, like back in the 50s, there was a television series called Topper. It was a show about a very stodgy banker and two ghosts, like a husband and wife ghost team in their 20s that haunt this guy. And it was actually a very funny show. And Ann Jeffries was the, uh, the ghostess with the mostest, as they said on the show. And she was terrific. By now, she was like in her 50s, but she looked great. She was like my first crush when I was five years old. And we loved her. And we called NBC and we said, okay, we've found the, uh, the director of the improv group. And it's uh, Ann Jeffries. And Ethel Winett said, okay, fine, bring her in and have her read for us. And so we called Ann Jeffries and we said, you got to go down and read for NBC. And she said, no. She said, I'll read for you guys because it's your show and you have a vision and you need to see whether or not I am right for your vision. But they know me at NBC I don't have to go down and read for them. And we completely agreed with her. And so we called NBC, we called Ethel, and we said, well, she won't read, but she's great. And it's Ann Jeffries. She has this tremendous body of work. And they said, nope, then she's not approved. So we couldn't have Ann Jeffries. We eventually ended up, by the way, with Marsha Wallace, who was great. But the casting continued. And now Ethel wanted screen tests. She wanted actual filmed screen tests. And meanwhile, our director was unavailable that week, so we had to hire another director who we had never worked with before to direct these scenes. And they brought in most of the actors. There were people coming in to read that we had never seen before and were terrible. And I still have those screen tests And I look at that, and a few people went on and were good. They just weren't right for the part. But other people, you're going, who is that? That person never did anything. That's probably the last time that some of those people were ever on the NBC lot. Well, they didn't like anybody 
<laughs> in that. There were a couple that were like, yeah, okay, you can kind of bring them back. But uh, there was nobody that they would approve. And now we're having a whole soundstage built at 20th Century Fox because they had never done a multi-camera show. So we had to put in bleachers and we had to put in control rooms and set it up for a multi-camera show. All of this is costing an awful lot of money. So now it's late summer, and we get a call from Ethel Winant that there was an actress that she loved, who she thought would be absolutely perfect for this. But this was an actress who was in New York doing a lot of Broadway things. And so we said, well, okay, uh, you know, I guess we can fly her out at our dime. And we did, and we flew her out. She's very nice, and we have since worked with her on other things. But she had done a TV variety show the year before, and it was a very bad experience for her. So she just didn't want to jump back into network television. She was having a lot of success on Broadway. She was in Wendy Wasserstein plays. She was doing really well. So there was no real incentive for her to drop all of that and do a half-hour comedy pilot. But she said she would think about it. And also, in the process, she said, if I do take this job, I want approval over my co-star, over the guy. Okay. So she goes back to New York to think about it, and Ethel Wynett calls us and has the guy. And we see tape of the guy He's like, okay. I mean, he doesn't really knock us out, but it's like, yeah, okay. And, and they're just beating us down. So we call his agent and inquire, and the agent says he's not interested. Why not? Because he had done a pilot, and there were all kinds of promises made to him that they reneged on everything. And he has a sour taste in his mouth for doing television at the moment, I guess he had some movies that were interested in him, whatever. So we call Ethel Wine and we said, well, who else do you got because he's not interested? And she's like yelling at us. Well, it's your job to make him interested. You're the producers. Convince him to do this. Okay, so we call the agent and we arrange to take him to dinner. So David and I take him to a, a nice dinner And he was a perfectly lovely guy. And he was going on and on about, you know, how he was screwed over in the last project. And David and I were like assuring him, that's not us. That's not the way we operate. It's going to be different. And by the end of the evening, we had convinced him. So he said, okay. So the next morning, they begin negotiating his deal. A couple of hours later, the Broadway actress calls and said, you know what? I don't like that guy. And we went, well, and she wasn't even signed herself. So Ethel Winant calls us and says, cancel the the deal with the guy. We said, well, we're in the process of making his deal. And she said, pull out. And we did. (laughs) We pulled out of the deal. And to this day, I regret that 
it's the lesson that I learned the hard way. At that point, I should have said, fuck you, no. We gave this guy our word, and if we're not going to do it with this guy, then fuck it and just pull the plug on this stupid thing because we have a certain amount of integrity ourselves, and we spent a whole night convincing him why he should go with us because we're so trustworthy, and now we're screwing him 12 hours later? No. Well, we were young and stupid and didn't do it. Like I said, I have regretted that for the rest of my life. Two days later, the Broadway actress calls and says, you know, I thought about it. Nah, I'm not going to do it. So now we lose her and we lose the guy. We finally do find somebody who we like, an actor named Philip Charles McKenzie, who was terrific. And again, we're getting down to it here. You know, it's the point where cameras got to roll pretty soon in order to be in contention, even for mid-season. So we had narrowed it down to two people who we liked, Maggie Roswell and another actress named Mary Edith Burrell. So we were going to bring the two of them to NBC to read for Ethel Winant. It is the morning of the reading. And the reading is supposed to be at like 5 o'clock. And we get a call from Eddie Foy Jr. saying there was this other actress who they're really interested in. And he said the name, and we said, oh, yeah, we're familiar with her. We saw her when we were in New York. Awful. She was just terrible. Well, apparently she's a friend of Woody Allen's. And Woody Allen called Eddie Foy Jr. and said this would be perfect for her. And we said, yeah, but we've seen her and we hate her. And he said, well, we want to see her. And she's on a plane right now. And she should arrive in Los Angeles sometime around noon. Okay, so I guess there will be three people that we will bring to Ethel. No, Ethel is very, very busy and only has time to see two. So what does that mean? We now have to do a Sophie's Choice and eliminate one of our two candidates? Yes. Oh. So we had to eliminate one. We eliminated Mary Edith Burrell, but it was really a coin flip. So we go in with Maggie Roswell and this actress from New York. And the actress from New York reads first. Would it shock you to learn she was terrible? I mean, just an enemy of comedy. Just sour. is awful. And Ethel Weinert was looking at us like, you brought this person in? What the fuck? And we're like, this wasn't us. It was Woody Allen. Goddamn Woody Allen. So then we bring in Maggie. And, of course, after this girl, you know, Maggie comes off as Lucy. So Maggie gets the job. And Maggie was terrific. So we finally have a cast of Maggie Roswell and Philip Charles McKenzie a guy named Terry Lester, who I think was Maggie's boyfriend at the time and had done soap operas uh, to play the love interest, good-looking guy, and Marsha Wallace, as we said, to play the director. So we filmed the show, and NBC, for whatever reason, 
kept tinkering with Maggie's wardrobe. And this started freaking her out because it's like, uh, they don't like me. They don't think I'm attractive enough. What is it? Uh, So that was freaking them out. And then we would get notes from the guy who was supposed to be our director. And we had a really good table reading. And he said, okay, we're in really great shape here. Just do what you got to do. So we did, and we made some changes and cuts and did what we usually do. And he calls us the next day, and he goes, what the fuck is this? You guys didn't change anything. I said, well, we changed what needed to be changed. And he goes, you guys did nothing. We said, we didn't need to do anything. What in here didn't work? And he basically just hung up the phone on us. So, so that was <laughs> the process during the filming. Now we get to editing. We had hired a line producer who is the guy who pretty much hires all of the crews and all of the post-production people and everything. And and this was a, a guy who had a very good track record, but primarily in videotape. He had done a lot of work for Norman Lear's company. So he suggested, and especially since we were in a time crunch, that there was a new system whereby instead of editing on film the old way that you could transfer the negative of the film to tape and do all of your editing on tape. Now, a few years later, that would be the norm. But at the time, that was very avant-garde. Well, we decided, okay, let's do that. So then we go to Compact Video in Burbank, to oversee the editing. Well, the difference at that time between film editors and tape editors was that film editors actually looked at all of the film and they made all of the cuts and they put together your rough cut. For tape, the guy was basically just a button pusher. So we arrived... And he's got all the cameras up on monitors and things. And he goes, okay, guys, what do you want? And we said, well, you just go and edit the way you normally would. And we'll just kind of oversee it and tweak it if we feel, you know, you can get off a shot earlier. Maybe there's a better shot somewhere else, something. And he goes, huh? No. (laughs) You tell me what to do, and then I do it. So now David and I edit this show, we had never edited anything. We'd never even been (laughs) in the room when a show was being edited. And now suddenly we have to edit this pilot. And there was one scene in particular, and this was totally our fault. There was a scene where the, the Nichols character comes to the Mays character's apartment with barbecue takeout food. And we had some barbecue, takeout food jokes along the way. And we filmed the scene like three times, but nothing matched. Nothing matched because in one scene, she's holding the rib in the right hand. And in the next scene, she's holding the rib in the left hand. And one scene, he's got barbecue sauce dripping off his chin. And then the next take, he doesn't. And you couldn't cut back and forth between the best performances. Oh, that was that was just unbelievable. So we finally put this thing together 
and we turn it in and our former director looks at it and says, congratulations, guys, you managed to combine the worst of film and tape. And that's what we turned in, and ultimately it did not get on the air. In fact, the only comedy pilot that did for NBC that midseason was Pink Lady and Jeff, which is a show, a variety show, starring a Japanese singing group that really couldn't speak English and a comic that NBC was very high on. So that was the end of of that. And then we had our second pilot to write for them. And they came back to us and said, well, you know, get rid of the uh, semi-tough thing. You know, what might be interesting is kind of an ensemble show in an improv group. We thought, okay, that seems like a really good idea. So we wrote that pilot and we were very happy with that pilot. And we turn it in and we get a call from, again, our former director, a guy who we had worked with at MTM. And he calls us up and he goes, guys, I'm really impressed with this script. We said, wow, okay, thank you. He said, yeah, you guys obviously put in a lot of work, a lot of effort into a show that you had to know wasn't going to go. And we said, what? And they said, well, after that last horrible experience with you guys, I mean, you had to know that there was no chance we were going to make this other pilot too. (laughs) Thank you very much. And so ended not only our two-pilot deal at NBC, but we were kind of persona non grata at NBC for a, a couple of years until we got on a little show called Cheers. And all of a sudden, we were the Golden Boys again. And the day of the first Cheers reading, Brandon Tartikoff was there. And after the reading, he said to me and David, can I talk to you guys for a second? And we went off to the side with him. And he said, you guys were right about Andrea Martin. We should have gone with Andrea Martin. You guys were absolutely right. I apologize. We should have gone with Andrea Martin, which was a pretty cool thing for him to do. So that is just one example of a pilot. Now, do the math. If each network does 15 or 16 pilots a year, how many of these kind of stories do you find? Probably a lot. Now, maybe not as many mishaps and missteps as the character's pilot, but you get an idea of why it is so difficult to make a good pilot and get it on the air. Hollywood and Levine continues after this. 
Okay, so that was just one of many pilots that we had down through the years. Uh, a lot of the others were more successful. In fact, to be honest, that was the worst of the pilot experiences we ever had. But I think it made a good podcast, so what the hell. Anyway, that's going to do it for this week. Our thanks to Adam and Susie Meister, Butler, to John Wolford, Howard Hoffman, and Randy Thomas. If you want to get in touch with me for any reason, any comments, whatever, questions, you can always email me at hollywoodlevine at outlook.com. That's hollywoodlevine at outlook.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Ken Levine, and I'm on Instagram, Hollywood and Levine. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll see you again next week. Bye-bye.